Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, hello. Welcome back. Hello. I know we haven't been away from the listener's point of view because we uh, we banked up a couple of episodes. Oh, yeah. But yes, it was half term. I went away. Does this mean you didn't have front row seats for the vote of no confidence? No, I was back for that. How was that from your point of view? Mm, well, I just saw lots of Conservative MPs sort of in huddles, really. But it, it was slightly like... When I ran into them, I, you had to be sort of slightly careful. You don't really want to say to somebody, how are you voting? Do you know what I mean? It's sort of slightly too intrusive. Here's what is fascinating to me about this vote of no confidence. If you just forget for a moment that it's Boris Johnson and yeah. all the baggage you bring to that, what do you think it feels like then being in the House of Commons, knowing that all these people sitting behind you on your own side want you out of a job? Not great. They're looking in your eyes and you're thinking... Are you one of them? Not great. Are you one of the not, ones? Not great, I would say. <laughs> well, not, not, not great. When I had a job, I'm sure more than a third of the people I worked with, my colleagues, thought, oh, he, he shouldn't be in this job. But you wouldn't but have wanted them to have a for vote. sure, yeah. You wouldn't have wanted them to have a vote. No, that is a what good... does that do to you psychologically? Yeah, good question. Because I remember when I interviewed you in 2015... Oh, yeah, I knew it would get to me, yeah. <laughs> but, but there had been, over the course of your leadership, these times where yeah. people had sort of briefed against you or there were r- yeah. rumours of an insurrection. So I was yeah. saying to you, how, how do you get out of bed on a day like that? You're not in the fetal position. Is, is, you're not weeping into your wife's lap. And you were saying, no, no, it doesn't bother me, I'm fine. But you, couldn't have been, you weren't being honest, right? You were, you were in election mode. I think there is a sort of... I think, of course, it's not true to say it doesn't bother you, but... but I think there is something about being in that position that you just, well, you just have a very thick armour, I think. You develop a very thick armour 
Like I do remember there were, when, the, the, when there was a sort of rumours of a putsch against me. You know, I actually never thought it was real and it wasn't really real. But you're more focused on how you put out the fire, not, oh, God, there's a fire, I think. And I suspect that's true of Johnson. But once the fire is out, how do you sit across a desk from somebody in a meeting who you know was ready to stick that knife in? I don't think I had quite that experience. I think it's obviously much more serious for him because 40-whatever-1% of his MPs said they wanted him out of the job. Yeah, you're right, that is a very graphic thing. Well, look, William Hague said that he would have gone in such circumstances. It's funny the gymnastics, the mental gymnastics people are capable of. No, no, completely right. Now, talking of confidence... How was your holiday and your Speedos? Let me tell you something. I am a complete convert to the Speedo. Oh. Very comfortable. I feel they gave me extra speed in the water. What's your favoured swimming stroke? A slow breaststroke. Doggy paddle. A doggy paddle is just a bit too frantic for me. You don't do the breaststroke head in the water. No, I, I, I barely stay afloat. One of my feet goes errant and splashes a lot. But yeah, I, I, the speedos went down very well. I think perhaps they've uh, perhaps they've injected a, a new je ne sais quoi, as they say in France, into my marriage. I think my wife was quite taken with them. Oh my goodness! I know people say uh, speedos leave nothing to the imagination, but I don't think anybody is imagining me in that way and hasn't for decades. <laughs> so I think it's fine. Would 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 you wear them in that pond? I don't know. Um... But are you wearing big baggy Bermuda shorts? What are you wearing in that pond? Well, generally, I'm wearing neoprene. So these are already streamlined and and figure-hugging? Not that hugging, no. I'm going to make a suggestion. You're not going to like it at first. Your instant reaction is going to be no, but I I just want you to consider it. Yeah. Would you think about doing uh, a fashion parade where we model our swimwear on stage at King's Place in London on the 17th of July? No. What if between now and then we've we managed to no. design and manufacture our own nope. range of swimwear? We could nope. sell it on a merch stall. Nope. What about our own range of Veruca socks? Nope. I just thought it'd be a tantalising prospect for anybody who's on the nope. fence about buying tickets. Well, we do want people to come, don't we? Yeah, it's going to be good. It's going, I'm really looking forward to it. And do you want to remind people when it is? 17th of July, it's Sunday afternoon, and it's at King's Place in London, uh, which is just behind King's Cross. And what is it? No, it's more than two years since we last stood on a stage together. It's going to be a yeah. wonderful moment. Treading the boards. Yes. Should we talk about what we're going to talk about? Yes. So this week we are revisiting a subject that we first covered on episode 11 of the podcast, way back in December of 2017. Now, I, uh, I went back and checked. You had just been to Sweden and the head of the Olaf Palmer Institute had given you a uh, yes. gift. Can you remember what it was? No. A sauna. Oh, Ed, what if the head of the Olaf Palmer Institute is listening to this? They're going to feel very slighted. Go on. What was it? It was a little wind-up music box that played the International. Oh. You're right. I remember. Have you not got it to hand on one of those shelves behind you? <laughs> It was also, this is even better, it was the week of your trampoline mishap. Oh, my goodness me. That's a video that's not going to be ever seen the light of day. And the detail I'd forgotten about that incident is you, you squashed a child. No, I did not squash a child. I just, I, I added for comic amusement that I had bounced around and a child had sort of fallen over, but it was 
exaggerated for comic effect. Yeah, okay. exactly. Okay. Well, I need to see the video. I think we need to move on to the subject that we're talking about. This yes. Week. So anyway, that was when we first covered the ultra-wealthy and getting them to chip in a bit more. Now, last month, yeah. a group of millionaires went to Davos and they actually asked governments to tax them more. And we're going to be yeah. speaking to one of the, the members of this group of millionaires patriotic millionaires. The last time around, it was just an American organisation. Now there is a, a British sister chapter branch. I don't know what you would call it. Uh, so we have Gemma McGough, and we're going to ask her about why she wants to pay more tax, what it could mean for society, if other rich people followed suit. And we're also going to be chatting to Steph Brobby from the Good Ancestor Movement and Derek Bardowell from 10 Years Time, which connects wealthy individuals with causes in, in quite an interesting way. And we're going to be hearing how some of the ultra-wealthy are, in fact, trying to address worsening inequality. What's your reason to be cheerful? Well, on Monday, there was a tube strike. And so I decided to ride my bike into work. Anyway, I've discovered something about riding my bicycle, which you will not surprise you, which is there's more chance of people saying nice things to you. Because when you're in a car... People aren't going to stop me. So I was stopping to adjust my helmet and a very nice man called Angus Gibson drove past me, I think in a in a minicab in an Uber, and then stopped 100 yards up ahead and rushed back to come and have a selfie with me. So I'd like to thank you for having paid Angus Gibson <laughs> to <laughs> g- follow me uh, on my route uh, home from work and get out of the car uh, and get a selfie with me. And I just can't believe, you know, how well organised the logistics. Those were complicated logistics. So Yes, yeah, you know, we had people so, on every street corner monitoring uh, yeah, your thank, progress. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. So you had a sort of helicopter, like GPS. Yeah, so thank you for having organised The eye that. in the sky. Oh, God, I'm just listening to you, though, and I'm thinking about you realising that being on a bicycle is going to make it more likely that people will ask you for selfies. And all the good that has been done by encouraging people to cycle more and putting in cycle lanes, you're going to undo it. You're going to be creating bottlenecks everywhere you go, out cycling around looking for people to have the photo taken with you. That is true. That is true. If you see him, make sure you ask for a selfie. Definitely. What's your reason to be cheerful? Borgen is back. Ah, yes. Now, just for any yes. Danes listening, I know it's not pronounced Borgen. That's the uh, that's the anglicised version. But I really enjoyed it the first time around. I'm so pleased to see it back. Can you, do you have to avoid it because it's too triggering for you? Well, it's a little bit Busman's Holiday mm. because it's all about climate and oil, and you know, it's yeah. I don't know. I'm sort of in two minds about it. We are a bit short of a box set, so uh, whatever you call them these days. I'll tell you what, somebody was telling me was good yesterday and I haven't seen it. The Stephen Merchant thing, I think it's called The Outlaws. What's that about? It's a drama. It's BBC, but I think it's um, light and funny in the same way that things like Barry or Better Call Saul can be. We definitely want light. Here we go. Seven lawbreakers from very different backgrounds embark on their community payback sentences, which involve renovating a derelict building in Bristol. Sounds a little bit too much like close to home for Justine. You see, the problem is it's finding it's finding things that are neither about the law and justice yes. or politics. Yes. Do you see what I mean? 
I think the two of you should try a little something called Love Island. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. So to start our conversation, I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Gemma McGough from Patriotic Millionaires UK. Gemma, thanks so much for joining us. No problem. We spoke to Karen Stewart from the American Patriotic Millionaires a few years back, and the UK version has sprung up since then, and you're one of the founding members. Perhaps you can tell us a bit about your own background and how you came to be part of this movement. I made my wealth running a profitable business and then uh, selling it and investing some of the proceeds in the stock market. I uh, became involved with the Patriotic Millionaires. I signed a petition by Millionaires for Humanity calling on uh, the government to uh, raise taxes on the wealthy to help cope with the cost of the pandemic. I did so because I could see straight away during the pandemic that You're surrounded by news stories about economic chaos and the people struggling to cope and the soaring use of food banks. And yet I could see my own stock market portfolio was going up and it seems like the wealthy can afford to pay more tax and the country obviously needs more tax revenue in order to uh, resolve the climate crisis, the inequality crisis. And it's, it's so interesting to hear this from your perspective because so often there's these accusations of class war and envy and all that stuff and, and you as somebody who has the the money in the bank or on the balance sheet and you're saying it, it wouldn't affect my life materially if I paid a bit more tax. <laughs> no it wouldn't I mean there's a lot of notion of like oh the rich will just flee if you increase taxes but I don't really think that's the case. It's not that easy to just pack up your whole life and move to the Cayman Islands or wherever or Monaco. I mean, how many people actually want to uh, to do that, really, when all of your friends and your family and your business interests are here in a, a stable democracy? I think it's unrealistic to think that everyone would just leave. You described how you came to being wealthy. You're not from money. Do you think that makes a difference if their story is like yours? Is that... In your experience, the person it's much easier to make the case to. Yeah, I do think a higher percentage of us made our own money and didn't come from money in the first place. So you've got more of a perspective of seeing both sides of the the situation. Although some of our group are uh, inheritees and uh, so it's... uh, you know, it's not always the case. A lot of people don't like change. And if you've got money, you know, it gives you an enormous amount of protection. I suppose the notion of paying more tax and so on, losing that money is uh, is unsettling. I don't share that view myself. I've spoken to a, a couple of people that were very wealthy and to try and encourage them to uh, join the cause and really received a very uh, patronising response. That was the next question I was going to ask you. What's the reaction of people being? What, what was the, the patronising response you received? Just that, you know, it's very naive to think that you'll ever gather any momentum on that because everyone is really just out for themselves. I had one person that I spoke to that actually expressed some interest and have since sent some information and so on. (laughs) Generally, it's uphill battle. And have you had the opposite reaction from other people being positive about it? Yeah, by and large, the view of uh, the group from the general public is very positive. Uh, Every time we run any... uh, things in the press. I get lots of people connecting on LinkedIn to praise the, you know, work of the group and um, you know, to say, you know, how inspiring it is. And lots of business people actually that aren't there yet, but think they say, if I ever did, then I would definitely hold the same view as you. And people that are aspiring to be wealthy actually don't necessarily think that paying more tax is going to put them off for <laughs> that goal. And the group made headlines recently by, I believe, 
signing a letter, I think 150 people from around the world, connected to the World Economic Forum in Davos. What were you calling for? Wealth taxes. And this is wealth as opposed to income. Yeah, that's the big focus is to raise tax on wealth, not work. Where we see any negative feelings about the notion of wealth taxes is where people think, okay, it's going to impact me because as soon as I make any money, I'm going to be paying a higher rate of tax. And that's really not the case. Most people don't realize that you're paying a lower rate of uh, tax on capital gains taxes, lower than income tax and so on. And so, and actually there is a lot of headlines now on how billionaires are not paying any tax at all or like such low rates because they're not earning any income in the conventional manner. We're trying to make it clear that what we're calling on is taxes that really only affect the super rich. I think it's 3.3 million or more uh, on an individual basis in the UK would be affected. So it's really, really like very wealthy people. One of the things Patriotic Millionaires talks about is the link between a just tax system like the one you're describing and rebuilding trusting government. Can you just talk to us about that idea? Explain the connection between those two things to us. There is a notion that money is a corrupting factor in politics. The very uh, wealthy that are now, you know, opted out of the social contract are using their money to buy privilege in government. And so with measures to reduce inequality, to revise the tax system, to make things a bit fairer, then hopefully uh, we'd reach the point where the very wealthy are you know, back part of the system. I think actually at the point that you no longer rely on the social contract, that's the point at which you are too wealthy when you no longer rely on a functioning society because you live completely outside of it. Then we've got a real problem on our hands. You're never going to have a completely even society. You need to have like a competition and the ability for people to raise themselves up. But we also need limits to make sure, okay, well, you've done really well, but now you know, the current system means that wealth continues to concentrate and you need to have some measures in place to stop that happening. Otherwise, uh, as we're seeing now, inequality gets worse and worse and worse and uh, you know, money's concentrating in the hands of the few. You said that there's public support. What do you think the impact of the group has been? What's the sort of theory behind the group? The theory behind the group is that it's very easy for poor people to say tax the rich and uh, for the right wing to say, well, if you tax the rich, you know, they'll all leave and so on. And so for uh, the rich to actually be saying, yes, tax us, it you know acts as a counterweight to that argument yeah. and helps people to see, OK, well, not everyone among the rich thinks that increased tax would be a disaster. We don't really expect any positive uh, outcome from this government. But we hope that we're laying the foundations for the future for improvements in the next government and so on. And the name is interesting, isn't it? Patriotic Millionaires. (laughs) And obviously that's come from the US. Yeah, it's a horrible name and the US hate it as well. Oh, really? Oh, right. It's the most divisive thing. Apparently they've argued about it for years, but um, they've always settled on it because it's so divisive. Um, and in the UK, we tried two other names and we couldn't really uh, agree on anything that works. It's like, well, you know, the, the US name is well known, at least. So uh, although actually it's even less relevant here because we don't use the term patriotic. <laughs> if you don't know what it is, it could sound like like a sinister cabal of millionaires um, <laughs> campaigning for nationalism or something. The idea is that, you know, in order to be patriotic, you want the best for your country. And uh, and actually raising taxes from wealth is uh, is the right thing to do. It's the patriotic thing to do. It's how you protect your democracy, how you do the best for your country. So, uh, so yeah, it's relevant. 
And just to play devil's advocate, is there any risk that you end up looking like the thing you're actively campaigning against? So like, money isn't just money, it's power. And rich people typically get disproportionate access to be able to lobby and influence decision making. Yeah. Now, it's difficult with this because obviously it's a it's like a fundamentally admirable, selfless, decent thing that you're asking for. If you didn't have money, you wouldn't ever get to be in a room in Davos or get the ear of the media in the same way. Yep, absolutely. So we do get accused of virtue signaling. People say, well, you know, there is a function by which you can just pay more tax or just give your money to charity. But that, that has to be universal. It, you know, one or two or 10 or 15 people doing it doesn't scratch the surface, really. Yeah, that's what I say. We need system level change. The government is going to need more money to invest in transitioning to a green economy, to you know, invest in uh, recovery from COVID. It seems to me that you know, more money is needed. And actually, there is more money than there ever has been. We just need to make sure that a bit more of it is cut off of the, uh, the very wealthy and channeled back in to benefit everybody else. And can I ask you a more personal question, which is, you were not coming on to podcasts like ours and doing interviews, I assume, before you did this. No. How has it been for you becoming involved in this and being more of a public figure on these issues? I found it quite interesting learning like uh, how the media system works. I mean, I've worked in uh, international business since I was uh, 16, but I've never done anything uh, with like you know, being in the public eye. Yeah. From a personal development perspective, it's been really interesting. And I feel like it's an opportunity to use my voice to make a change rather than just, I mean, you know, I do give money to charity and uh, volunteer time and so on, but this is something completely different. I feel like having positive views on this sort of thing can you know, maybe one day it'll make a difference. And just to finish, how do you stay optimistic about where this goes in the future? Well, I think that people are ultimately good and that there are enough of us, there will eventually be enough social pressure for a systemic level change. And I think um, that the climate crisis will force changes eventually. Well, look, Gemma McGough, it is incredibly inspiring to hear you. We really congratulate you on, on your advocacy. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. <laughs> it's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra. And I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. To carry on the conversation, I'm delighted to say that we're joined now by Stephanie Brobby, who is founder and CEO of The Good ancestor movement. Stephanie, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. In a nutshell, I think you're you're on a mission to persuade wealthy individuals to become good ancestors. Tell us what that means. I suppose why I named the organisation the Good Ancestor Movement was really a result of working with and alongside lots of philanthropists and seeing that they were really keen to leave their mark on the world and really preoccupied by the, the concept of legacy. But realised that actually, isn't it future generations that should determine our legacy in actual fact? And so I'm on a mission really to support people to uh, shift their thinking, people that, that really want to use their resources to transform the world and to fix some of our most challenging problems. I'm not really in the business of persuading people. I've made a really strategic choice to focus on the kind of early adopters and innovators of this movement of people that are pushing back against prevailing narratives around excessive wealth accumulation and tax minimization and actually using wealth to create new economic systems that serve both people and planet. Can I ask you about what your personal journey is with this? I sometimes wonder if people find themselves in high finance or private wealth like you did, I'm guessing in your 20s, you would have been really focused and hardworking to get there. Was there some kind of like road to Damascus moment where you think, oh, this feels icky to me? Or were the values that you grew up with a thing that you were carrying with you? How did this all become important to you? Thank you for asking that. It's you know, this has been a huge part of my personal journey. So I just by way of background, my parents came here in the 80s. They're from Ghana originally, and they migrated here. I was born here along with my siblings into a working class family, grew up on a council estate in West London, you know, had a terrific state school experience, loved my teachers. Parents taught me about the importance of community. And, you know, my mum was the sort of mum that booted me down to a soup kitchen when I was about eight. To, to help me recognise actually, yes, we were struggling, but there were people that were, you know, a heck of a lot worse off than we were. And that stayed with me. And I originally wanted to become a human rights lawyer. I studied law and I thought, I'm not sure, not sure about all this and thought I'd become a civil servant. But as it turns out, I was offered a, a training contract at a firm in the city and bizarrely ended up qualifying into private wealth, private client law, which you know, I had no proximity to wealth apart from when I moved from a council estate onto a nice street. But I was captivated by the human element. I just developed really great relationships with clients. It was academically and intellectually stimulating. I was just very focused on building up a level of economic stability for myself, having come from economic precarity. And, you know, thought, great. I joined a philanthropic community. I sat on a couple of boards of non-profits. I thought I kind of remained connected to my roots in a way. New Year's Eve in 2019, I was at a party and a, a friend of mine walked in and she said two things during our conversation that changed my life. The first was that according to Dr. Nicholas Nassim Taleb, who's a Lebanese mathematician, the three most harmful addictions in life are heroin, carbohydrates and a monthly paycheck. 
And I thought, oh, my goodness, <laughs> am I addicted to my paycheck? Is that what's keeping me in my job? Yeah. And the second thing she said was that there were more food banks than McDonald's in the UK. And I always tell that to everyone because I was absolutely horrified that we live in the fifth most advanced economy in the whole world. And yet we have more food banks than the most popular fast food chain. So that was my road to Damascus moment. I thought I, I don't want to be part of a system where I'm essentially helping people to concentrate wealth and also depriving governments of their ability to raise revenue through tax efficiency advice and tax minimization advice. So that was my journey. Really, I've come full circle with my, my pursuit of justice and the genesis of my <laughs> desire to go into the law. And I'm now in this economic justice arena, which wasn't expected. And it's a very specific moment in time for this, because over the next few years, there's going to be this big transfer of wealth across generations. Could you just explain why that is? There are lots of different figures floating about, but it's something around uh, 68 trillion US dollars that's supposed to be changing hands between baby boomers and millennials over the next couple of decades. And that's because baby boomers are a generation that have accumulated a lot of wealth through political and economic circumstances over the last few decades. Millennials are a generation that have been more exposed to what's been going on in the world and our problems and challenges. And so therefore seem to be more inclined to want to use all their resources and their influence and their networks towards social transformation. And so there's this huge opportunity at the moment, particularly against the backdrop of the existential problems that we're facing with climate change and environmental degradation, but also global inequality. And so there's this real energy and, and momentum that, that we're all harnessing at this time to redeploy capital into places that are going to serve our collective prosperity. Talk to us about the process by which somebody comes to you. Why don't you role play it, Ed? Why don't you pretend to be like Donald Duck's rich uncle or something, or, or some uh, eccentric billionaire? You've you've got an appointment with Steph. I think you might be better at that, Jeff. Okay, so so Ed, Ed comes in, Steph, and he's wearing his top hat and he's got a cape. And he, he says, uh, I've been very fortunate in, in my life. I've heard about what you do at the Good Ancestor Movement. What happens next? They'd probably be coming in on a bike and definitely not in a top hat, <laughs> judging by our client base so far. Well, this is very Ed. He's t recently taken to cycling. Oh, right. OK. Yeah. And and probably, you know, come from a bit of wild swimming in the morning, you know. So I mean, you were just you're <laughs> describing the man here. Is, apart from the net worth, you have him exactly right. Yeah. Well, I I think the starting point, obviously, we're very focused on building relationships with our clients and, and getting to know them and their drivers. They I have to say they tend to come to us already with some kind of strong position around social justice or particularly the environment and climate change. But to get everybody on the same page, our main point of engagement at first is, is educational. I believe that in order to understand some of our most complex challenges, we've got to interrogate systems. To my mind, if you really want to transform the world and you've got a lot of resources, a lot of wealth and influence in the world, the natural starting point is to look at the economy. We run an educational program called Reimagining Wealth and we invite kind of progressive voices and ideas into that learning experience. We've had Kate Rayworth, we've had Aaron Advani, Miata Fambula, whole range of brilliant thinkers, political scientists, 
even a public philosopher coming in and, and, and bringing ideas around the need for a balanced economy, the role of taxation, the critical role of progressive tax reform, narratives around inequality and poverty and so on. That piece is really critical in shaping um, a narrative or theory around the kind of the lens through which they see the world and the world's problems and what's causing those problems. And that then informs the kind of their view on how what they ought to do, their practices around wealth and tax in order to build the world that they want to see for future generations. What's the sort of suite of things that you're hoping they might do at the end of all this? Yeah, so once their educational gap has been filled, we tend to support them to develop what we call regenerative practices around wealth and tax. And that, first of all, involves looking at their wealth, what they have, what they might have come into in the future, looking at their their values. And we've helped them to identify where those values are at risk of being breached or where they're already being breached in the context of their wealth and their tax. So it could be that actually they do believe in a fair society and they do believe that we should invest heavily in public services and they're actually involved in tax avoidance or tax efficiency, as advisors like me previously would have said. Or perhaps they really care about the environment, they care about people earning a decent wage, and they're actually invested in a ton of really extractive industries and, and companies, often those that are listed on the stock market. Ultimately, a lot of what we're doing is really supporting them to think through how can they use their wealth to create and build new systems that will serve a new economy. And so that could be helping them to think through where they might start to uh, divest from mainstream investment and start investing in communities or grassroots efforts, investing in leaders. And it has really catalyzed a lot of action among people to start taking control of their wealth insofar as is possible and redefining their relationship with their, their advisors and the advisory system, which you know, is part of the broader economy and therefore seeks to reinforce the prevailing narratives around excessive wealth accumulation and tax minimisation. And on that, you know, if you you dig into why there is so much wealth in European countries and Western economies, you don't have to dig very far until you hit history of colonialism. Is, Is there an aspect to this which it's elevating future generations in a way that past generations were oppressed? Yeah, absolutely. This work has to be intergenerational. It has to be international. I do this work because I'm pursuing collective liberation. And of course, that sounds a bit woo-woo to people, but really we can't individually be free until we're all free. And so this this is a work of repair and reparation and, and restitution. So whether you have direct links to slavery and colonialism or, or whether we're in a part of the world which has benefited greatly from oppressing other nations through extraction, through dispossession and violence and genocide. It's a much deeper work than just looking at supporting people with transferring wealth and redistributing wealth. It's about collective liberation and the work of restoration of both the planet and our societies. I think what struck me about our guests is that in in many ways you're working with wealthy people, but you're trying to get to an understanding and and you, you take a perspective that is about structural solutions, like on tax, rather than simply individualistic solutions. How has this experience, Stephanie, made you think about the sort of balance between philanthropic solutions to the problems we face 
and the more structural solutions? And what, what perspective does the organisation have on, on that? I suppose all the work that we're doing is trying to work towards a world where we no longer need philanthropy. The influential wealth holder is really to resource the new structures and systems that we, we're going to need to see us into a, uh, a sustainable and prosperous and more distributive economy. So that's the balance. But in the intervening period, we, we recognise that philanthropy is really a tool that can be used to resource the the solutions that we need in the future to, to redesign our structures and systems to ensure that everybody thrives. We have a thing on the podcast called the Jeffocracy, which is like a utopia where we get to enact all the ideas that we've heard about. Is this something that exists outside of what government can do? Government can increase tax rates and introduce wealth tax, but the, the kind of shifting of attitudes that you're talking about amongst um, high net worth individuals is is there something that could be supported in that by government? The phrase that comes to my mind is this idea which summarises what our clients and community members are doing, what they're operating in, which is this idea of private sufficiency and public luxury. That's all about investing in our in public life and, you know, making public life a beautiful, luxurious place for everyone and bringing in different voices and different parts of the community and nature. And really, ultimately, it's all about connection and, and ensuring that that connection is really well resourced. Well, look, Stephanie Brobby, it's been uh, great to speak to you, your founder and CEO of the Good Ancestor Movement. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. With us now is Derek Bardowell, who is the Chief Executive of 10 Years Time. Hello, Derek. Hi, Jeff. Nice to meet you. Thanks for joining us. Now, 10 Years Time's Twitter bio says that you are helping funders take big bets on new ideas that could change the world. Now, we, we are all about world-changing ideas on this podcast. So t tell us a bit more about what you do and, and what the idea behind it is. Well, we very much take philanthropists and funders through a learning journey, an educational journey of honest reflection, but also radical action to dismantle systems of harm, but also to resource racial and economic justice with care and confidence. We absolutely understand that in order for people to change, this has to be a combination of the head, the hearts and the hands. The people that we work with can meet those that are driving solutions to some of the biggest social issues in this country and abroad to change the way that they give. To some extent, with very wealthy people, they, they can be unaware of the way of that accumulation of wealth is impacting other people and, and society more broadly. Yeah, that's why it's a learning journey. There will be moments where they are aha moments for people, where there's recognition that some of the things that are happening in this, this world, that they are partially responsible for it or complicit in some way, shape or form. This is also a journey about unlearning lots of the things that we have been taught through most of our lives. The fact that it's not just individual responsibility, but there are heavy systemic issues. And also just really breaking down some of the history of, of capitalism, racial capitalism, neoliberalism, really going through some of these really key concepts for people. We live in a society that's very individualistic, that is more around growth and accumulation and preservation and competition. You know, you have organizations like ourselves coming along and saying, well, no, this is actually more about community. People can be very defensive if you suggest 
that the starting line wasn't the same for them than it was for other people and they they can shut down so it's it's a way of getting those people to show empathy i guess none of it is easy we're not sitting there accusing or making judgments of people there are so many people that we work with where they just don't have the space or they don't have the networks where they can have the type of conversations about these things. And I think what we always say when we work with our clients is that we experience the bumps with them. There's going to be some ouch moments. There's going to be points where you might not like what we're hearing, but there's also going to be um, some massive points through that journey where you're going to say, oh, wow, I really didn't know that. The other thing that we're always trying to break down is the fact that for many of the people that we will work with, they will often respond to things when it's through the conception of pain or through grief. So they see something on television and then their, their first response is, oh, we need to do something about it. What we try to do is turn that around and say, well, actually, these communities have some fantastic solutions themselves. They're doing some great things already. Um, hear about it, hear what they're doing. This is very different from what you might see on the front page of the newspaper. And, and is it also about sort of changing the focus from individual acts, which can be very worthy and important, to organisations that are seeking to change structures yeah. and, and structures of power? Yeah, absolutely. We will always advocate for more systemic change. We will always advocate for a rebalancing of power, things that will go to the root cause of, of social issues. So I give an example that, you know, some of the early conversations that we'll have with clients will start with the notion of giving um, money or they're giving really contributing to something that is going to be quite instant. So it might be, and this is not knocking this, but it might be a food bank. It might be something that is very immediate to the needs of someone that is experiencing some level of disadvantage and harm. Um, as we've gone through the journey with people, we have moved many of our clients on to starting to look at the root causes of poverty and food insecurity as opposed to the services. It might be fantastic to help out a hundred people. But if you're talking about a policy change that ends up really benefiting everyone across the country, um, if you're talking about support in the way that the flow of money goes into a particular area or to a particular group, that's really powerful and that's more sustainable. We, we just talked to Gemma McGough from Patriotic Millionaires UK who are arguing for a fairer tax system. Talk to us about how your work, how you think of it as dovetailing with the work of an organisation like that? So this is going back to how we look at things through a more systemic and structural lens as opposed to a, an individual lens. And so we might, as a organisation, working with philanthropists, turn around and say, if you invest your funds in something like looking at tax equity or tax justice or a fairer taxing system, if you funding the work of, for example, Kate Rayworth's Donut Economics, or um, if you're investing or working with Stephanie Brobby at the Good Ancestor Movement and stuff, for us, you are giving to really being able to change the system that starts to really redress the balance quite fundamentally. What we're finding is that particularly with next-gen wealth holders, that they are thinking more in this way than 
their parents did in terms of how they feel about their wealth, what they want to do with it, and how they invest it. It means that the way that we contribute is getting those wealth holders to really fund in a different way, but really contribute to funding ideas that really is moving towards a more progressive tax system. Tell us a bit more about that generational thing. How are they thinking about this? That is different to previous generations. Well, the the people that I speak to, and this is probably within the age bracket of 25 to 35 years of age, um, generally the ones that I speak to have a greater awareness of racial injustice. They have a greater awareness of climate injustice. And also by doing some of this work, it brings them into conflict with often their parents or other family members and pretty much every wealth holder that, that sits behind them. This is not what they want to hear, but they are certainly more anxious and aware and thinking about these issues in my experience. What I like about this is at one end of the spectrum, you have an organisation like Patriotic Millionaires who want to pay more tax, but their their peers laugh in their face when they say that. And then at the the other end of the spectrum, you've got more traditional philanthropy where you end up with a system where very rich people with good intentions often, are able to bypass the social contract and the the taxation system to fund their pet passions in in a way that would be prioritised completely differently to how a, a government would do it, not by need. And what this model seems to do is shift people from one end to the other. For us, and I, I address this in my book, Giving Back, is is that Actually, philanthropy plays the role of preserving the status quo. So, so much of philanthropy that we see, and yes, there are tax breaks and, and everything that's associated with that. But what we, we find is that there is a deep underinvestment, for example, in organizations that are led by racially minoritized communities. What we see is that a very small percentage of very large charities really accumulate quite a significant amount of the the income from charitable trusts and foundations. All of these things you start to see absolutely replicate some of the disparities that we see in society. But also just to say that philanthropy, given its um, particularly charitable trusts, its independence really enables it to be one of the greatest potential catalysts for significant change in terms of really being able to resource really bright ideas, really resource systemic change. At this point, so much of the funding being sticky plaster funding um, that's trying to cover up the cracks for what the government's not doing towards really moving towards catalytic resourcing. Let's end by uh, asking you, is there an example of a favourite um, 10 years time success story that springs to mind to give to give our listeners um, a reason to be cheerful? Well, there's, there's many reasons to be cheerful. I would say that every single client that we've worked with has changed in terms of what their initial conception was. I think that bit that has been the aha moment, which is not just on the personal level, it's the bit around the trust in communities. Some of our clients seeing someone that's experienced a social issue and then funding them and actually saying, okay, we trust them. We trust not only their experience, but their solutions. That has been one of the more frequent things that have happened with the learning journeys we've gone on. 
Well, Derek, it's just been brilliant talking to you and hearing about what you do at 10 years time. I find it really inspiring and a way forward. Thank you so much for taking the time. No problem. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Ed. So what did you think? I think it's one of my favourite conversations in ages. And as is so often the case with this podcast, it was one of the ones where I kind of came into it thinking, uh, yeah, philanthropy, it's very nice, but really it's just tinkering around the edges. It has to be about tax policy. And, and yeah. the more the conversations went on, the more I became convinced that fostering empathy in very wealthy people about their own situation and privilege isn't a vanity project or a back rub to get more money out of them. I mean, I I, I agree it's a really interesting conversation. I think that what all the guests had in common was they're about structural solutions to the problems of inequality. Yes. And it's not to sort of downgrade or diminish the importance of giving specifically to make a difference now. So nobody was nobody's doing that. But they but but they're saying that on its own, I think, all of them, is not gonna move the dial in the way it needs to be moved. And you need big structural solutions. And that requires an understanding of why we have such inequalities uh, in our society. And then it takes you to thinking about the way in which funding can be used. I was reading this conversation between Nick Hanauer, um, who we've had on this podcast before. He's got a podcast called Pitchfork Economics, and Anand Girandas, I think I hope I've pronounced the name correctly, who wrote a book called, Win- I think, Winner Take All. And Nick was saying, funding an organisation that's campaigning for the minimum wage as a philanthropist is a really good thing to be doing but it wouldn't be the way you'd normally think about philanthropy. Do you see what I mean? Yes. So philanthropy can fund structural solutions to the problems that the country faces, recognising that philanthropy on its own isn't going to produce the solutions that we need. I was also very struck by what Steph said about the uh, the handover of wealth assets from the boomer generation to uh, the millennial generation, and it reminded me that I haven't yet had a birthday present from you. God, yeah, I know. It's on my conscience. I'm just trying to find the right one. Well, I don't know if it's ungracious of me to suggest it, but I think I'd be more suited to the Theragun elite than the Theragun pro. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. If you've got thoughts on what you've heard on today's episode, you can find us at cheerfulpodcast.com. We love to hear from you. If you spot me cycling around, uh, um, wobbling on my bike, uh, we'd also like to hear from you. We could get a big map and then plot sightings. Yeah, and if you'd obviously, if you'd like a selfie, just don't hesitate to ask. Right, talking of um, self-publicity... Uh, this is, comes from Nigel Geary Andrews, and the subject is: Has Jeff acquired a car, and has he been mooching around in Purley? I'm staying tight-lipped until I hear what Nigel has to say. Hello, Ed and Jeff. I was under the impression that Jeff doesn't drive, so was I. However, does he have a chauffeur? And has he visited Purley recently? I saw this car parked at Purley railway station. Maybe it's one of several dotted around the country, which kept ready on the off chance Jeff is in the area. Keep up the entertaining podcast. Cheers, Nigel. And here is a. BMW car with Jeff Lloyd personalised number plate. Wow. Have you got anything to say? Look at that. It's actually GF110YD. Ah, is it? The fact that you knew that is very interesting. Well, I'm staring at a photograph (laughs) of it. Oh, yeah, fair enough. That's true. (laughs) Um, uh, I've never really seen the appeal of the vanity plate, have you? Um, Would you have R3D3D? R3D. 
it kind of looked like Red Ed. Because oh, these things oh, never I look see. exactly what they're supposed oh, to. No, I haven't really gone down that road, but it's a firm denial, isn't it? Yeah. What about 5W1MM3R? Swimmer. Yes. Not bad. All those years of spelling things upside down on a calculator have really paid off for me. It's, it's quite the ability yeah. to work these out. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, no, no, I, that's not my okay. car, but... It's not your car. Uh, it's, it's, you wouldn't mind a ride in it. It's inspired me to take driving lessons. It's given me something to yeah. aim for in life. Yeah. This comes from Emily Wildbore, who says, Hi, Ed and Jeff. I know I'm a bit behind, but I've just listened to the episode about urban wildlife, and I wanted to big up Newcastle upon time, not underline. Uh, I moved here in July last year from the Midlands and I've been so pleasantly surprised about the access to green space in a previously very industrial city. There's Oosburn Valley, which used to be a very industrialised part of the city around the river, and it's had a revival with a barrage installed at the mouth of the river to keep the tide high, encouraging lots of wildlife to return, including otters and kingfishers. Wow. She says, we've also got a moor in the city called the Town Moor and the beautiful Jesmond Dean, which, while you're in the centre of, you'd have no idea you're in a city. There's also an enormous flock of kittiwakes. What is a kittiwake? I don't know, really. It's a bird of some kind, I would have guessed. Google image one and describe it for us. Yeah. Wow. So what does it, what does a kitty wake look like then? You're holding your laptop up to the um, webcam, but it's it's a, a, like a seagull. Oh, that's disappointing. <laughs> well, no, a seagull with grey wings. I feel that the name kitty wake promises a lot and then delivers something a bit more quotidian. No, I think they're not bad. They return to the Tyne Bridge and neighbouring buildings every year to nest. They're a sight to behold, even if you're not a twitcher. Um, and there's even a group of residents in Heating who are attempting to rewild the back lanes of terraces with pollinator-attracting planters in the hope that it will in turn attract birds and fauna. Well, I think uh, Emily should work for the North East Tourist Board here. Absolutely. She's done a great job. And um, just, just very quickly, this came in from Chris Glover, and uh, he says, My son, Peter, swims at the ponds, but so far hasn't um, investigated the presence of Ed or Dan. How's Dan, by the way? Not seen him for a few days, actually. Did you bring him a present back off holiday? No, the zapper is, is going to be the Christmas present. Chris continues, As an aged non-sleeper, it's my favourite podcast by far, Aww. and I think the aubergine dish that Ed mentioned is shakshuka. I don't think it was. I have made shakshuka That's very before. eggy, isn't it, that? It's egg and tomato. I didn't know there was aubergine in it. Well, thank you for your email, Chris. And yeah. just stick a pin in the idea of Ed's cooking. because There's more to come. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Oh, ho, ho. We're in the outro. We are. And we dangled the carrot. Yes. It's taken us 200 and something episodes. It's the best segue from <laughs> stuff to the outro that we've ever had. It's Ed's culinary skills because you sent me a photograph. Yeah. Uh, you captioned the photograph, prize, if you can guess what this is. Yeah. And then you added, it's not faeces. Yeah. I just thought because you would say... Well, straight away I thought, oh, it's faecal matter. This is revolting. We've got our boundaries here. No, I thought you were going to just say something rude. Well, it's specifically, it looks like, you know when you hear comedians talking about how you don't see white dog poo anymore? I didn't know you had that, but yeah. It looks like, do you remember Morph had um, a friend called Chad? Is it? (laughs) Has he melted? Has he been in some kind of terrible accident? 
No. See, I want you to see. I want a serious guess. I think it could be some yeah. kind of dip, or it could be some kind of uncooked dough that's about to go into the oven, and it does look like it's perhaps on greaseproof paper. So I think you have made a muffin. That's my guess. Uh, I'm afraid you're wrong, and oh. Rachel is right. Rachel said it was aubergine related, and it is indeed baba ganoush. Baba ganoush. I mean that's pretty impressive, eh? Did it taste as good as it looks? I, I we bought I bought I made some aubergine dish. I can't remember what it was. And then I ended up with too many aubergines. So I thought, okay, oh, we can't just keep eating aubergines. I'll turn it into baba ganoush. And I was a bit short of lemon juice. I, I'd also put too much garlic in, but I thought it was pretty nice. You're really selling it to us. Too much garlic, not enough lemon juice. No, no. As a first go, looks like fecal matter. As a first go, it was creditable, I'd say. I mean, I ate it, which is a good... I wasn't just eating it because I wanted to sort of make myself feel better. I sort of thought it was quite nice. I think definitely making something that isn't required to hold an aesthetically pleasing form is a good direction to go for you. I don't think that's right, is it? I mean, surely I want something with an aesthetically pleasing form because your I, point I wonder, is... I wonder if you're trying to uh, run before you can walk. I wonder if it's a bit beyond you at the moment. So you something think... which just looks like a dollop is probably quite quite good for you. But then you just sort of say bad things about it when I send you the picture. You either say, why didn't you send me the picture? Or I send you the picture and then you say, you know, something horrible. Well, it was you that said it's not feces. No, I, I know. I just wanted up. to... But no, I wanted to sort of... I wanted to head you off at the pass. <laughs> <laughs> That's the point. I really want to try some of this stuff. Would you consider posting some through my letterbox? Some baba ganoush. I'm worried, though, that if this came through my letterbox, I'd think one of my neighbours had a grudge against me. <laughs> You just said you wanted to taste some, so you could then make that rather lame joke. I did, I did, I did, yeah. Oh, gosh. Should we thank our guests? We should. Um, I really enjoyed talking to everyone this week, uh, as I always do. But uh, I mean, I don't think I've enjoyed talking to you, if I'm honest, the last few minutes. (laughs) So, you know, I mean, it's good that you enjoyed talking to our guests, so I did too, but just Uh, like present company excluded. It's good to have a third wheel there when things are a little strained between us. Yeah, exactly. You're on your best behaviour when there's somebody else. Exactly. Yeah, Gemma McGough, Derek Bardowell and Steph Brobby. Emma Corsham is our audio producer. Our content producer is Rachel Barmer, who's supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made our iDents. Ed Seed composed the music. And our artwork was designed by... Henry Cole. He's been GF11OYD. He's been 3DM11118 AMD. And these have been... <laughs> reasons to be cheerful hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain i learned this the hard way after losing my cat gingy so i created pretty litter a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors saving you money and potentially your cat's life pretty litter is veterinary and developed and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.